Shrinkwrap Radio number 798. Michael Alsay, Ph.D. on Therapeutic Improvisation. And now it's time for Dr. Dave and Shrinkwrap Radio. You're on the couch again with Dr. Dave. And Shrinkwrap Radio is playing on again. Yeah. It's all in your head. It's all in your head. Shrinkwrap Radio. Shrinkwrap Radio. Shrinkwrap Radio. Shrinkwrap Radio. It's Shrinkwrap Radio. All the psychology you need to know and just enough to make it dangerous, it's all in your head. And now here's your host, Dr. Dave. My guest today is Michael Alsay, Ph.D. He's the author of the new book, Therapeutic Improvisation, How to Stop Winging It and Own It as a Therapist. Dr. Alsay demonstrates how therapists can make their sessions more dynamic, responsive, and effective through creative strategies. Examples from music, movies, and literature illustrate how the scientific principles of interpersonal neurobiology can help therapists claim their artistry in practice. Clinicians will be refreshed by the innovative vision of mental health practice as its own unique art form. Now, here's the interview. Dr. Michael Alsay, welcome to Shrinkwrap Radio. Good to be with you, Dr. Dave. Well, very good to have you here. Actually, I understand that you're not a newcomer as a listener to Shrinkwrap Radio, and I'm curious, do you remember how you found out about it? You know, one day I was looking for which podcast would really speak to therapists and you were amongst the top five that came up Yeah, and I thought I got to start listening. And, and then I saw that who was on the roster and I'm like, yeah, I got to start listening. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I've been blessed to, uh, to be able to talk to some of the, the really major people in the field of which you are one, as far as I'm concerned. And uh, I have to, you know, we're going to be discussing your book, uh, Therapeutic Improvisation, How to Stop Winging It and Own It as a Therapist. Uh, I feel like I've been winging it for a long time in a lot of ways. And uh, but but that title, just as soon as I saw the title, I thought, I got to talk to this guy. And, um, <laughs> and and your book really delivers on the promise. So, uh, so and, and I was just in my mind going, well, where was he when I needed him? Where was he when I needed him? <laughs> Probably weren't born yet is the problem. <laughs> That's when I could have used you. Um, so so you're, the idea of improvisation really speaks to me. And partly that's because uh, I was very caught up in the uh, folk music boom of the late 50s, 60s, into the early 70s. and uh, and learn to play the guitar somewhat. Um, but, um, and 
and I had some, and I also tried to take up recorder. I tried to take up piano at a much later point. And a lot of that was oriented towards improvisation. And I have to say, uh, there were a few, my, my technical skills never got to the place that my soul needed to be fully expressive of the music that I felt was inside me. Yet somehow, if I felt confident enough, and I think this is important in terms of your book, if I felt confident enough among friends, sometimes I could just soar and surpass whatever limited skills I have with the support and the love of the people around me. So I've had some some moments of improvisation that just felt true and musical, just just felt truly a transcendent. And I, you're nodding your head, and I know that you know what I'm talking about uh, with your own musical experience. Yeah, there's something sublime about being able to capture that when we improvise in that way, or when we create art or music or literature, or I think therapy is an art form in of itself. We actually tap into something that is both us and bigger than us. Yeah. And it's right now in the moment, but it brings together all that we've learned before. And, and it's this kind of moment of, like you said, transcendence and grace. And I think one of the things, the reason I wanted to write about it is because it's so difficult to figure out what that is. How do we prepare for that? How do we open ourselves up to that? And we talk a lot in our field in therapy about the science behind what, what works in therapy, what helps, what yeah. for this population versus that. Sometimes we don't talk about the artistry and the art that is built into this process and also how we are trying to help people live their lives creatively as if we're all improvising. Aren't we all winging it? But sure. <laughs> if, if we can move from winging it to yeah. improvising in a way that makes something interesting and beautiful out of every chord change that comes our way, I think all of yeah. us would be a lot happier and more fulfilled. Yeah, it's kind of, it's a sort of a dance, I think, uh, particularly when, well, it's not just two people, it could be in the context of even more, um, but a lot of my experiences with two people and, and, and sometimes in, in some groups, actually. So yes, it's a wonderful, it's a wonderful transporting kind of experience. And I, I want to, before we get deeply into into your book, I'm curious about you. Uh, one of the things I love about your your book is that you tap into all these different uh, sources of inspiration: uh, music, uh, TED, uh, uh, poetry. It goes on and on. We'll be talk, talking about Movies. that. Right, movies. Yeah, 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 movies. Yeah. So play for us the movie of Michael, the early Michael, the early years. <laughs> Run <Yeah>. that clip. <laughs> yeah. So so Michael the early years was greatly inspired by his mom, who was both a social worker and a student of literature. And uh -huh. so my mom would talk about literature and the characters as if they were our good friends. And we would talk about our lives as if we were interesting characters to keep on exploring. Oh, nice, nice. And there was a way in which the, 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 the art of conversation became a sort of magical discovery, um, both talking to her as my mother, but also seeing the way that she talked to people and could mm -hmm. open up different facets of their experience. And so Michael, growing up, was really, really inspired by how, how wonderful and 
and connecting and energizing and vitalizing it is to stay connected to that core. And so I always was finding a way to connect the literature and the arts. Of course, growing up, I was also a, an amateur pianist growing up and finding a way to connect these things to the joy of discovering together in conversation, which I think therapy is really just showing us how to connect more deeply that we should be doing outside of therapy and that, you know, every opportunity is an yeah. opportunity to play new music together. Yeah. Yeah. And life as art. And, and, you know, I always used to imagine that, um, that I, the, I wanted to be the character in a novel. I loved reading novels and I kind of tended to imagine that I was in a novel and I wanted to make the story as good as I could. That led me to some real adventures in the course of my life and also doing some really risky stuff because I wanted the movie to be interesting. <laughs> <laughs> and at times it was very, very interesting. And my mother as well, let's hear it for moms because uh, my mother was a great inspiration to me. In, in a similar kind of way. She was a frustrated writer. She she wanted to write. She was going to uh, write the great American novel or something. I'm not, I'm not sure what, but um, for me, it was always fun to be with her. And uh, so back to your story. What about your dad? Where is he in this mix? Yeah, so it's interesting. Uh, you know, you'll see in the book, I write a lot about this combination between therapeutic presence with this like kind of warmth and openness, which is very much my mom. Mm -hmm. And also my mom was very, very sharp. She could zero in on stuff very well. My dad too has a very, very sharp discriminating intelligence. And uh -huh. I think part of it comes from the fact that he was a refugee from Egypt who came in the 60s to America and had to really like learn how to make it. And, you know, he, he really, I think seeing the resourcefulness um, on my dad's side, oh, yeah, you know, to survive um, here. Yeah. yeah. And so I think, you know, the combination of, of seeing that resourcefulness and that tendency to take really kind of sharply delineate things, but also the, the real kind of warmth and openness and creativity of, of my mom's style, they both obviously really inspired me. Yeah, kind of a masculine principle and feminine principle. Uh, yeah, yeah, and then and then it was it was it was funny to see my mom because my mom could could embody both, so uh -huh. she could be listening to you tell a really important story, and you know, fifteen minutes, twenty minutes, she'd just say a few commentary to help you see something new, and she'd laser right in. But you felt like she was holding it, but she was also right in there. Yeah. Yeah. That's I think that's what good therapists gift. do. Yeah. Yeah. yeah wonderful gift. And uh, you've, you've uh, solved the mystery of your last name for me, I think, given that your dad's from Egypt. So I assume that your last yeah. name, Alsei, 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 I've heard people pronounce it both ways. Yep. And just for our listeners and viewers, in case you want to look Michael up, it's spelled A L C E E. But the first E has, what is that called? The diatonic. Accent aigu. What is it? Accent aigu. Okay. <laughs> yeah, that's the French accent. Yeah. I can't figure out how to get it into, uh, into some of the programs I'm <laughs> writing this in. But uh, 
Okay, so uh, so we've gone through the early years. Uh, then, how do you develop? Where do you go? Uh, where do you go to school? What do you want to? What do you imagine yourself becoming? Yeah, so it's funny. I, I went to Williams College, which was a really wonderful liberal arts college, and so I was exposed to everything. Oh, you lucky. Know, um, yeah. You know, I took biology. I was a biology major and a psychology major, and I took short story writing classes and photography and you name it. Um, but what hit me is I did a field placement one year and I was working with juvenile delinquent boys. And I thought, gosh, this is going to be the furthest from my own experience. Let's see how this goes. They're going to eat me alive. And it turned out that um, these boys would open up to me and we'd play pool together and they'd talk in all these different facets of their lives. They'd play me the music they were working on. All of a sudden I saw how powerful this capacity to be present and also to help someone really look at what is important to them. Yeah. And I just started to lose track of time. And I thought, gosh, if this is what being a therapist is, I'm in. Yeah. It was the, the idea of stories that brought me into uh, wanting to be a therapist through, because uh, coming up through high school and all people would tend to tell me their, their stories and their innermost secrets and uh, and I th- and that felt very rich, and and that was part of the reason why I wanted to be a writer. I majored in creative writing, uh, but then discovered that you have to spend a lot of alone time <laughs> to do that. You do, yeah. <laughs> and I, I wasn't down for that. <laughs> yeah, and it, it turns out when I went to college too, I, I took um, piano lessons with a particular jazz teacher who was wonderful. His name is Andy Jaffe. Um, and I, I was so amazed. This this guy could listen to music and instantly tell you all of the chords in real time, tell oh you all the scales you could possibly play. He could reproduce anything. Wow. And I just was amazed. And I, I was neurotically just trying to keep up with some of it. I used to old school tape record it. And But what I realized is I, I'm not as good a jazz improviser as all that. But when it comes to tracking people and listening to people therapeutically, I work a lot like a jazz musician. Mm-hmm. And I think there was something in seeing that, oh my gosh, you can do this kind of creative thing. Yeah. And also help people transform their lives and help them get to see more of the full range of their humanity, uh, help them to see that these contradictions yeah. are actually quite interesting, help them to lean in and embrace the dissonances and, um, you know, I was gonna I was gonna play th- this thing for you um, on Great. the piano. Wonderful. To show you what it means to lean into dissonances. So here's a song, a jazz standard called uh, "The Nearness of You." Right. That's that's if you just take it straight. But watch what happens when you do a little bit of embracing the dissonances and going into some changes. Yeah. (laughs) One of the things psychologically is we get afraid of some of these changes because we're taught that, uh oh, they'll lead to conflict or they'll lead to certain challenges. But how different when we could say, let's see what interesting, new, beautiful turns we can make in reharmonizing and seeing what we can do with this old standard. Yeah. I'm not sure how well the microphone is picking up. So I don't know how well this 
this will come across. Uh, we'll, we'll just have to see in the playback. Um, it was breaking up a little bit on my end, but I don't know if that was just my end or not. Mm. Uh, but uh, uh, I, I wanted to drill down a little when you said you had the experience of when you were working with his boys, uh, the delinquent boys you had, the, it felt like you were doing jazz. And I just wanted to drill down on that a bit. How was that jazz like? What's jazz like is that you don't know where it's going to go in a mm -hmm. way. Mm -hmm. But you also have a sense that there's some kind of structure. Because if you think about it, when we do therapy, we're basically playing the blues with somebody. Oh, I love was, that. You said that in the book. And because yeah. I'm a longtime lover of uh, uh, African-American country blues. And so I, I, th I just thought that just hit a chord, if you will, with me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, because if you think about it, there, there's a form that we know is going to happen in terms of us sharing our deepest fears and our deepest hopes. And, and the blues, I think, you know, expresses that. It expresses yeah. the, 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 the sorrow, but also the longing and the desire. Yeah. Right? What Susan Cain is writing about in her new book, The Bittersweetness of It. And, and I think, you know, there's ways in which talking to people who you know have had bitter things, have had difficult things, but you also know they want to still connect to the goodness too. Yeah. And so in some ways, you know, you're going to be playing with those particular chord changes that we all have these standard chord changes, but then it's new which one you're going to play and how you might harmonize it. So for example, you might have the same melody harmonized in very different ways. So somebody talks about their sorrow and they talk about it in one way versus another person talks about it in another. Yeah. And even the same person can move in and out of different ways of talking about anger, sorrow, loss, any of that. And I think our role as therapists is to be attentive with our ears, but also with our hearts open for what are the kind of deeper, more rich storylines, if you want to make a literary analogy of looking at the different dimensions of this character, or if you want to look at it like a poem, we're constantly on the lookout for how we can find the next turn in the poem. Yeah. What new yeah. place we can open up a completely different way of turning it on, on its head. Right, right. Beautiful. Yeah, uh, we all have a story. I, I you know, that's one of the things that we realize early on is as, or at least for myself, as attached as, a, as I've been to my own story and the wonderfulness of my own story to discover that, well, there's a way in which my story is unique, but there's another way in which it's pretty universal. And and, you know, and, and the blues is universal. That's caught on worldwide, you know, that musical form, um, because it taps into such universal things. So the challenge is how you as a therapist are going to respond to that. Yeah. And also, if you want to borrow from the classical world, we're all born with a polyphonic heart and mind. In other words, we have multiple melodies happening often simultaneously, and it feels very chaotic and messy. But when you look and listen to a Bach fugue, you hear oh, interesting, those. interesting, it's almost like watching a Swiss clock move. Yeah. Um, you, you see the intricacies of these small gears turning. And 
a lot of we want to be virtuosic as monophonic, like I'm just playing this one part. But we have to remember that we all start with these multiple selves. And it's a wonderful illusion that we have this unitary self. It's that we're constantly moving back and forth. We're very dynamic creatures. Mm-hmm. And, and yet the thing is a great musician learns polyphony. Like as a pianist, you learn the Bach preludes and fugues because it helps you do the classical and romantic repertoire and everything else because it really strengthens you. And I think sometimes we get, um, you know, we talk a lot in our field about diversity, which is fantastic. And we talk about inclusivity. We don't always talk about it from the inside out. We forget to talk about how easily we all could marginalize or sequester or uh, exile different sides of self Mm -hmm. and how we could try to polarize and not only divide ourselves, but divide each other. So I think kind of using this understanding that neurobiologically we're built from a polyphonic place, but with the capacity to be virtuosi and how we can embrace those interesting contradictions is cool. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about the polyphonic because you have a chapter in the book that starts off with that idea. And and you also talk about the neuroscience. Um, I'm I'm. now you you are working as a therapist, but you're also working at a musical place, yeah. right? <laughs> where, yeah, where are you working right now? Yeah, so I've worked primarily in college counseling centers at you know Fordham, Vassar, a place called Ramapo, but now I work at a music conservatory, Manhattan School of Music. Um, so I work with actual musicians, uh, and you know, in classical and jazz and musical theater. And so that was a big inspiration for the book as well to see that all that musicians, all that artists are doing to train themselves is everything that we do as therapists and everything that we all can be doing to, to really be integrating even more. Yeah. Yeah. And the, uh, the issues that, that, that they're dealing with too are are probably pretty universal for many of us who are not musicians like uh, stage fright, for example, Mm -hmm. And uh, I mentioned earlier, you know, that for me to be able to musically improvise, I have to be really comfortable, feel really loved and all. And um, uh, professional musicians have to struggle with those things. Yeah. Oh, completely. I mean, I think the funny thing is we, we sometimes segment off artistic creativity and personal creativity. As if, you know, you only have one or the other. Uh-huh. It turns out personal creativity actually synergizes and helps us become creative artistically or business-wise or whatever innovative place we want to be working. Yeah, yeah. And I think one of the beauties of, you know, you know, that's where Rogers and Maslow really tried to help the field not forget that um, in, in really looking at the humanistic grounding of things. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think even artists say, they, they think, Oh, I'm not personally creative. I'm just artistically creative. Huh. And, and non-artists think I don't have any creativity in me whatsoever. Cause I'm not a painter or I'm not an actor. Right. right. And neurobiologically we're built to be artists. We're built to be scientists. And the beautiful thing is when we bring them together, that's why I use the jazz improviser metaphor. Because a jazz improviser doesn't see any distinction between the science of music theory and the science of chords and melody and the performance and expressivity of it. It just doesn't make sense. You have to really be on the top of your game of both. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. 
I'm remembering one guy that I took piano lessons from, uh, and I was choking up, you know? And so he kind of went into therapist mode, although he was not, <laughs> not a therapist, although he called himself Doc. <laughs> Doc. <laughs> and it was, uh, but at any rate, he said, well, what, you know, what's jamming you up? Uh, close your eyes. Uh, what comes to mind? And right away, I, I got some ideas about some negative thoughts uh, or judgments from my stepfather was what came up for me. And he tried to, he had me look at my hands and uh, says, try, think of them as baby hands. You know, you just baby hands on the piano keyboard. It can do whatever they want to do without judgment. So I love that. And I think you hit on something so important that in order to be creative, we also have to then revisit the places where we've been introduced to the critic, mm -hmm. whether their critic was initially outside of ourselves or became an internalized thing, yeah. or if we also could be very self-critical of ourselves for a variety of other reasons too. But to be creative means to contend with the critic um, and also to be able to humanize or tame the critic and the yeah. perfectionist within us that needs us to have it all together. Yeah. And so even as therapists, we have this pressure to be great therapists when we're starting out or even when we're in, you know, in the middle of our career or even later. The, the funny thing is that we need to constantly be balancing our expert's mind and our beginner's mind mm -hmm. and, and toggling back and forth. And that's actually how we're neurologically built. Because if you think about it, interestingly enough, the right brain centers love novelty. They crave novelty and variety, and they're interested in creative flights of fancy. The left brain wants to have nothing to do with novelty whatsoever and wants to be <laughs> completely logical. The way we are built tries to find the complementarity and the antagonism to create something that's a third. Interestingly enough, music is formed by thirds. And transcendent yeah. creative work is formed <sighs> by the third. You know, we talk about, you know, in, in, in the therapy space, it's, it's two people, but they create something in between them. And so I think there's something. Really, That's really a big powerful. Jungian idea too, right? Is the emergence yeah. of a third coming out of the conflict of, of the opposites. Yeah. It's, it's, it's amazing. It's amazing. And I think sometimes we forget that that's how we're built. You know, it's so funny. I was looking at, if you look at the history of psychology, right? We go back and forth between right brain and left brain, right? Freud starts and his major thing that he tells people starting out in psychoanalysis is have evenly hovering attention. Make sure you just allow yourself to just not judge anything and be completely present and open to it. And then later he gets really dogmatic and very interpretive and left brain, right? Uh -huh, yeah. And then later the behavior. Well, he had to justify himself to the critics. Completely. Yeah. And then, of course, the behaviorists come in and, and try to be very left brain, only what we can measure <laughs> right. and only what we can observe. And then the humanists come in and say, wait a minute. No, no, there's something that we need to be present with. Mm -hmm. And then back to cognitive behavioral. And it, it, even the history of psychology is trying to oscillate and figure out how to kind of unify these things right and and i see the unification happening in our field uh as the behavioral people are less behaviorist than yep. they started out you know <laughs> they can admit that there's an internal world that needs to be worked with 
whereas uh, Skinner was and his uh, people were totally in denial of that. So yeah, I mean, you see it. In, there's in the some kind of integration that's happening as we move along the timeline. I think. Which I think is wonderful. I think you see it in the third wave CBT stuff, right? Like in terms of the DBT and the acceptance com- commitment therapy. I yes. think we are finding ways of synergizing and integrating. And, and the reason I wrote the book was to say, it doesn't matter what theoretical orientation you use, having this meta framework that I want. So Ian McGilchrist, the British psychiatrist wrote this great book, The Master and His Emissary. He yes. describes the uh, the left brain as the emissary to the master that is the right brain, and essentially what happens is we basically we basically take in things primarily for the right brain first, try to give it to the left brain to represent, and then we check it with the right brain again. So it's almost like this three step dance. Yeah, and I think it's really important to see that we need both sides working beautifully. And we need them to respect each other a little bit more democratically. And then we can do that. We will find the newness, but we'll also really be very sharp and really yeah. like focused. Yeah. Uh, I can't help but think politically now as you're saying that. And, you know, and what we see going on in the world today where, uh, you know, there are, are very repressive voices, very uh, attacking, <laughs> literally attacking uh, killing forces. There are also uh, political yearnings for freedom and and uh, and self-expression. So it's these dynamics seem to play out at many levels. It's funny because you know you're right about the polarization and the sort of fragmentation and division that we see. And in a way, it's really interesting because I think we also have challenge with complications and complexity and nuance. Mm-hmm. And especially because of our different echo chambers, we sometimes like to think we all have a monopoly on yeah. what that dimension is. And ironically, it's like, you know, the more things change, the more they stay the same. It's like Eric Fromm writing about in Escape from Freedom. Like when there are times of great transition and great difficulty figuring out where we are, we do move towards polarizing stances. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What did you struggle with most as a trainee coming up? Uh, because yeah. you, some, in, the, yeah. in the book, you do say, hey, this isn't necessarily easy. Uh, improvisation sounds like, oh, yeah, wonderful freedom play. No, I struggled uh, with that completely, Dr. Dave. Yeah. Like, so for me, I so I think we all lean towards one or the other. And I lean towards the being present and empathic and trying to kind of feel things intuitively, but I didn't feel as confident with saying, Oh, wait, this is what I see. Or, you know, let me pull this all together. Mm-hmm. And so for me, improvising and having that freedom was scary. In fact, in the beginning, I used to write notes throughout my sessions because I, I still, I was trying to process, I process through writing. And so I think part of it was trusting also there, this left brain side of me was over trying to overmanage things though. And eventually I had to like allow myself to say, wait a minute, um, I don't have to catch everything because it's going to be there and it's going to get repeated. Yeah. Yeah. And actually, and actually, if I'm not totally attentive, that doesn't mean that's bad. I might actually be dreaming of something new that's in the field. 
And I started to be more playful. And one of the things that really helped me is I use metaphor a lot, as you could tell. And I also use pop culture images. And so I would start sharing metaphors or images or pieces of literature or movies that I would just conjure as I was talking with somebody. And I found that I could play in a way and trust my instinct better. And that's how I was able to develop this therapeutic authority, like I said, which, which was not, which was not something that I felt going in. I felt like really out of control. Yeah. Yeah. Um, You know, one of the things that I'm really impressed by is the extent to which you have drawn on Ted, uh, the Ted conferences. And, uh, and also I want to, be sure to mention that you. Uh, I enjoyed seeing the wonderful TED presentation that you did about uh, introversion and uh, and that we all need to learn to uh, to value the introverse uh, the introverse within and yeah. and and people who are primarily that way around us or seem to be and um, and this kind of grew out of some of your teaching and and. Uh, counseling work really where you saw that um, maybe you can talk a little bit we were going to go one of a different place but let's just sit there for a moment yeah i mean in in some ways uh, i i think a lot of us who are therapists respect so much the inner world i think that's something that really draws us and as well i think therapists are love the extroverted because we're doing this in a social relationship yeah. And I think therapy kind of brings out the best of both worlds, which is when we feel most fully human to connect deeply inside and to connect deeply outside of ourselves. And one of the things that really struck me about working with introverts is I saw that it wasn't just that introverts were misunderstood because our culture kind of started to believe in this extrovert ideal. It's also that our culture has lost touch at times with the value of, it, of, of going inward. And I think that one of the things that's beautiful about psychotherapy is that like fiction, like poetry, like art, it privileges the inner world and it keeps it sacred. And I I wanted to talk about how we could learn from people who are introverts to stay connected to that and also help them because introverts sometimes are struggling with anxiety and depression. And it's a result of not understanding how they work. Yeah. Yeah, I really uh, resonated to that, and I was tempted to uh, send it to a couple of friends, uh, the link, who uh, have worked in counseling centers a lot, but they're retired. And so I thought, okay, (laughs) (laughs) I'll just, uh, I I won't try to to, uh, evangelize them about this. And also, they might feel like I'm calling them a name or something. Here, you need to see this about introverts and introversion. So one of the things I wanted to say was about your use of TED as you're bringing in film and jazz and music and poetry and literature, all these different sources and in building an argument in your book for uh, for having a style that's improvisational in terms of pulling from everywhere and finding metaphors everywhere. And so I have to say, I've never encountered a book in which Ted was liberally referenced all over the place. And yeah. I think I think that's a genius right there to, <laughs> to, to have the nerve to do it. 
You, you know what's interesting? I think I was trying to figure out why I did it. And I, I you're, you're making me think about it right now. Good. And one of the <laughs> things I think is that the thing that I think is beautiful about TED is that in order to be a TED talk, it's really, um, it's, 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 it's poetry masquerading as a conversation is a TED talk. Mm-hmm. But it's also a very, usually it's a personal story, but it's a personal story in service of an inspiring call to action for the collective. And so what I love about TED is that it brings the best of, of all possible worlds together. It says, I have something to share with you from deep in my core, but I think it's something that will resonate with you and possibly, just possibly, it could change the world. And yeah. I think it's that spirit in which I think therapy works too. Like quite possibly, I want to help you from my core but I also would like to help you find your voice more fully and maybe together we can change the world. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm wondering, did you have to get permission from uh, the Ted hierarchy to, to uh, use it so liberally in your book? Well, I hope not. Um, (laughs) (laughs) The suit hasn't arrived yet. (laughs) No, no, the suit hasn't arrived. I mean, I think one of the things I also was trying to show is that, that the funny thing about a Ted talk too, is that, they say, even though there's one person up there doing a TED talk, they say that the audience is the true hero of the story. And I just thought that ethos is so, so beautiful. And, and, you know, it also reminds me of what Fred Rogers was doing, how I start the book and talking about, you know, I think Fred Rogers used media in a way that was very new and revolutionary. And, and I think what TED does is use what technology, which can be used for wonderful things, but also can be used for really terrible things. And I think they they really try to make sure that it has this important, wholesome, um, you know, transformative message. Yeah. Now, the other thing that intrigues me about it is that really fits with what we're talking about here is it looks easy, but Ted requires that you rehearse and that yeah. you really get it down. So, in other words, they impose a huge amount of discipline. Yep. And it looks like these wonderful presenters, you included, they're just kind of tossing off these great ideas. Yeah, I'm just, I'm just telling, and they also throw in jokes here and there. You're like, oh, sure. Yeah, right. And so there's that same balance that we're talking about in therapy of, uh, of getting to a place where it looks easy, but there's a lot of discipline behind that or, or with music the doing the scales over and over and over and over again. Yeah. And actually, you know, you bring up a really good point too. It's also about finding your unique and distinctive voice as a therapist. Yeah. We all need to find our unique distinctive voice and to know what instrument we're working with and what instruments we're working with inside and what are the fuller stories. And so we can embrace our fullest range as I said, like in the book, like, you know, as Walt Women says, I'm large, I contain multitudes. We have to know how to contain and express our multitudes so that we can help others contain and express their multitudes. Yeah. At the same time, if we want to help people develop their own distinctive voice, it helps if we've developed our own. And, and I think artistically, that's, that's, and scientifically, I think that's really, really helpful. And I think that's also what Ted does as well. It's like, I'm going to develop a particular voice to share with you, but I hope it inspires you and maybe it even inspires you to find your voice with this or something else. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, I'm just looking at my notes here, wondering if there's anything that I was hoping to uh, bring out. Or you know, the other uh, thing too about it, David, yeah. while you're looking, is yeah. I, I also think you know it gets at the spirit of interdisciplinary cross pollination. Yeah, because you know what I love about TED is like you like you watch. There's a beautiful TED talk by a conductor named Itai Talgom, and he he basically shows you all these great conductors to show you about leadership. And you think he's talking about music, but he's talking about more than music. And so the way in which what I love about what Ted does is it takes from different fields and surprises you yeah. of how they're, we're all really speaking to each other. And if we really open up and listen, boy, we can all, there's a universe that we can all kind of can kind of get closer to and, yeah. and that is contained within us. Yeah. And, and you're right. I know I've been drawn to watch, uh, TED presentations that on topics that I didn't think I had any particular interest in, but it's presented so well and in such an interesting way that, uh, you know, changes my mind about that. It's funny too, when you think about therapy as that, you know, the thing that also makes therapy run so well was when our clients feel like we're really there, but also, really immediately connecting. And that's not something that you can just do as a role. You use the role, but you have to also be coming from a sort of soulful place. Obviously, psychology mm -hmm. is the study of the soul. We should come from the soul, right? But it's coming from that inner place, just like a good actor has to have a certain kind of presence to really be in the character. Yeah. And I think sometimes it's interesting, you know, because I, I was once at the Psychotherapy Networker Conference and Irvin Yalom was getting a Lifetime Achievement Award. I write about this in the book. And I, I raised my hand in front of like thousands of people and said, you know, Dr. Yalom, I just want to thank you because I think you've taught all of us how to be artists. You've taught us how to embrace the questions. Like Rilke said, you've taught us how to be jazz musicians. And he said, wait, me? I'm not an artist. <laughs> I love artists, but I'm not, I'm not a novelist. I mean, really? yeah, he is a novelist, but, yeah. but he didn't think of himself as an artist. And, and I thought, wow, if Yalom doesn't think of himself as an artist, that's really interesting. And why don't we as therapists think of ourselves? Because we do all the things that good actors do really empathizing and getting into the fullest cap um, aspects of our characters. Um, we, we listen like musicians we essentially help write and revise stories like authors. Um, we are involved in this kind of intricate dance that's always changing. And so I thought it's sort of funny, you know, us therapists, we sometimes, we sometimes, we, we don't kind of toot our horn in that way, but I think there is something really artistic and, and really quite beautiful about the art that is therapy. Yeah. Yeah. Really well said. Well, your closing chapter in your book is looking ahead to uh, what your vision of what psychology or psychotherapy needs to be, needs to become in the future. Can you sketch that for us uh, as if you haven't been the whole time? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, so, so we're, we're victims of our own success. We always are, right? So the great thing about um, mental health and, and psychology and social work and therapy is that we become really good at classifying all these, you know, different psychological disorders, which makes us understand all these different aspects of human suffering, right? We know a lot about mental illness and we know a lot about mental health. I, I think one of the things that I'd like to see is to see us expand to, to look at how 
our lives are about improving our personal and artistic creativity. And, and that also understanding how we are built and how we work, just as we understand the operating system of our phones really well, yeah. that hopefully we can learn the this wonderful operating system that we are. Like I sometimes joke that we're sophisticated emotion regulation machines and idea generators and, and how to work with those things. But I, I would love to see, um, you know, a, a mental health vision that looks both at problems and beyond problems, um, that looks at these interesting Shakespearean three-dimensional capacities and challenges and limitations that we all face. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe it's a little naive, but I do, I do think there are ways in which we're doing it. And I think we are owning more of the fullness of ourselves. And I think, I think just as I said, with the history of psychology and the history of, of, of humanity, I think we go back and forth in trying to yeah. figure out how to put it all together. And we're yeah. constantly dropping part of it and pecking it up again. Right. Well, certainly you're calling for, uh, you're reaffirming the need to move away from a totally mechanistic view of uh, of people and and of lives and, and of psychotherapy and uh, for something that's deeper. What is your vision, your personal vision as you look forward for yourself, what what's next in the Michael movie? If you can talk about that. Oh gosh, yeah. You know, there's a part of me that toys with one day writing a general audience book about some of these ideas about how the psyche works, mm-hmm. because a lot of clients and people come into therapy with me and they say, "Gosh, if I knew this was going to be this fun and this effective." I would have come so much sooner. Wow. And I just think, you know, it's it's sort of a shame that we don't get more of a an education in this, uh, a sort of understanding about, you know, just like, you know, every piano should learn the Bach preludes and fugues, we all should know about how the polyphony works and why it's a beautiful thing and why dissociation works and how it's protective and how it can be defensive and, and how this right brain and left brain are trying to figure things out and work together and also are antagonizing each other all the time. And, you know, how these different sides get disconnected um, or exiled or marginalized. I just think it would be wonderful if we can kind of learn this in a way that's accessible that both highlights the science and the art of what it is to be fully human. Maybe that's a little bit too tall to ask as an order, but we'll see. Well, it's good to have something to shoot for to give you a general, <laughs> a general sense of uh, direction. Uh, let me throw one more toughie at you. Uh, uh, due to COVID and other things that are going on in the world right now, the possible end of the planet as we know it and so on, uh, there's a lot of trauma mm-hmm. out there. And I wonder if you have ideas for how we might be more creative. Uh, one-on-one isn't, there aren't enough people who can do one-on-one to yeah. deal with all the people who need this. Do you have any ideas about scalability in terms of uh, how we might be more creative? Yeah, I mean, I think what's the interesting thing about this pandemic has been an interesting experiment. And also, it's almost like we've all been sort of marooned on the same island, and yet Mm -hmm. separate islands connected remotely, right? Yeah. Um, 
And 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 I think one of the interesting things about it is that it has us reimagining what it is our lives, what we really prioritize in life, what's the balance of work and personal stuff, and what are the relationships that really matter. And I think it's given us not only a possibility to reset, but also to notice what's really important for my stability and my sense of vitality. Yeah. And so I actually see this as an interesting co- collective opportunity to ask the questions anew and answer the questions anew, which I think is really good. Um, And then the other thing is to to recognize that when you're thrown a lot of changes, it's natural to figure out what am I gonna do with this? And to know that that's why I think it is helpful to understand how the chords change inside and what happens when, when the environment outside is changing. But then remember what I said about when I played the piano, when things are changing outside, we wanna see like, wait, what can I make interesting out of this? Yeah. What, huh. what interesting, the fact that I'm forced to be home, what can I do with that? How can I be mindfully creative about, wait, now maybe I can do this or spend time with that. And it allows us to kind of still be fluid and to remember that as much as things change, the human capacity to be creative has been with us since time immemorial. And so the other thing I would say as a kind of important paradox to hold is as much trauma as we have experienced collectively and individually, as much as trauma as we have, we have resilience. And if we can hold the paradox of owning our trauma and owning our resilience, that's when I think you're able to improvise most fully because you have to allow yourself to be vulnerable to improvise, but you also have to feel confident and strong. Wonderful. Is there anything else that you would like to say as we wrap it up here or have we pretty much done it? <laughs> yeah, it's it's so much fun to be able to riff on this stuff. And I think one of the other things that I think you've been kind of getting at throughout is, is how much of a joy it can be to allow yourself to discover what you sort of know, but don't fully know yet. Mm-hmm. And also to recognize that you knew more than you thought you knew. Yeah. And I think, you know, <laughs> improvisers come to that place where they feel confident enough that they know what they know, but they're intrigued by why they're about to know. Yeah. Which to me is sparking ideas around intuition. And uh, do you have any particular thoughts about intuition and the role of intuition, which yeah, has I mean, something I think- to do with what we might know, don't know. It's, it's an interesting space there where intuition comes in. I think it's actually, again, coming back to our you know, survey of, of Western civilization is that when we cut ourselves off at the neck with Descartes saying, I think, therefore I am, we, we've forgotten to, we're, we're rediscovering the wisdom of the body and the wisdom of the in- intuition and the wisdom of that right brain. It's interesting. Um, when when babies are cradled, they're cradled in a certain direction so that they're actually connecting with the right hemisphere because that is the most tuned in, no matter whether you're a righty or a lefty. So there's something really powerful about trusting the inherent wisdom of that in the body. And it's just as strong as the, the, the wisdom of the mind. And I think one of the things that's really great about psychology these days is that we're doing much better job of integrating the body and the mind and the soul. Yeah. Well, that's a great wrap up right there, Michael. So, uh, Dr. Michael, I'll say, I want to thank you for being my guest today on Shrink Wrap Radio. 
Thanks for having me, Dr. Dave. I was really thrilled to have the opportunity to speak with my guest, Dr. Michael Alsay, author of the 2022 book, Therapeutic Improvisation, How to Stop Winging It and Own It as a Therapist. Actually, I kind of fell in love with him before I actually had a chance to meet him online or read his book. He had me at the title, Some of the Highest Moments of My Life, have involved musical improvisation. This despite the fact that my actual mastery of guitar, later recorder, and even later piano was quite limited. One of the first things I said to Michael in our interview was, where were you when I needed you? The answer, of course, was he was either quite young or hadn't been born yet. I was thinking of my own clinical supervision as a clinical psychology doctoral student. I never felt really seen or deeply affirmed for the potential I felt within myself. It was a very psychoanalytic program, and probably because I wasn't in analysis, I didn't get it. Any basic instructions on how to conduct sessions were completely lacking. By comparison, today there are instruction manuals and scripts from a variety of perspectives to give students concrete ideas as to how to proceed. So yes, I really was winging it. So now I realize that the real answer to my question to Michael, where were you when I needed you, is that the field had not evolved yet to that kind of clarity that is available today. Another reason why the idea of improvisation initially sounds so appealing is that it sounds easy, but it's not. As Michael writes, quote, It's not easy to learn the craft of therapy. There's so many of us and so many of them, and we're changing all the time. It's humbling, confusing, and downright scary to become a therapist. It's certainly not for the faint of heart. Close quote. In the worlds of music and theater and painting, among others, it generally takes years of study and practice before one develops their own voice and the facility of real flexibility and freedom in their chosen field. It's clear that Michael has put in that work, both in his study of jazz, piano, and psychotherapy. Also, he champions becoming broadly educated drawing generously from the humanities to grab insights about the incredible breadth and depth of human experience. And, of course, he's also gleaning as much as he can from the latest neuroscience to create an integrated approach, embracing both the art and the science of psychotherapy. For example, he writes, quote, Why all this multidisciplinary fuss and uber-focus on the humanities? Like our patients, we learn and grow best in an integrated fashion where the right and left brain are equally respected and shown ways to collaborate again. We are also meant to think and feel our way through stories. As therapists, we all know the tremendous power of witnessing, 
how it enables us to own, express, and contain our own multitudes inside, and even more how it enables us to help the world itself celebrate the diversity of our unique humanity. Close quote. In this book, he sets out to provide a glimpse of the sort of supervision I was missing in my own student days. Quote, so yeah, this book takes each of you on as my special supervisees from a distance. I'll try to anticipate your hopes, fears, and struggles and provide guidance and a curated ride so you can feel safe enough to enjoy and free enough to wonder and wander. Close quote. So yeah, that's what makes this book especially unique and valuable. A unique feature of this book, for example, that strikes me as a real genius move is the way Michael makes use of the wonderful collection of TED and TEDx videos. TED is an amazing treasure trove of free information, inspiration, and learning opportunities. But I've never before seen anyone draw upon it so heavily in a book. Michael's book has a sort of appendix in the back with three or four recommended TED Talks from a variety of fields that support each of his major chapters. He calls this section of the book TED Tie-Ins. So there are TED Tie-Ins for each of the following chapters. Introduction from Winging It to Owning It. Chapter 1, Is This Thing On? Finding Your Voice. Chapter 2, Writing the Left Brain, Neuroscience. Chapter 3, Weaving Together Many Voices. Chapter 4, Therapeutic Presence, Not Knowing and Staying Tuned In. Chapter 5, Therapeutic Authority, Owning Your Confidence and Making Music. Chapter 6, Why You Need Lateral Mentors Too. And Chapter 7, Toward a New Vision of Mental Health. Close quote. Aren't you just dying to see the TED videos he's curated for you? If nothing else, and there's plenty else, this guide is worth the price of the book. Speaking of TED, I would be remiss if I didn't direct you to Michael's own TED presentation titled Introverts, College, and the Mind, Solving Our Mental Health Crisis. Search for him by name on the TED site. Michael, spelled M-I-C-H-A-E-L, and Alcee, spelled A-L-C-E-E. -E. And once again, you really should buy his extraordinary book, Therapeutic Improvisation, How to Stop Winging It and Own It as a Therapist. Hey, Dr. Dave. My name is Carl, and I just wanted to call and take a minute to say thanks so much for the podcast. Uh, you do a great job, and um, I've probably been listening for about the last five years uh, during my uh, time in graduate school in Seattle and up to the present. Your shows have inspired me. They've been illuminating, entertaining, educational, so I really appreciate them. I'm a, a union-leaning, psychoanalytically trained therapist, and, and I've really enjoyed your guests um, over the years, some that come to mind, Nancy McWilliams, David Wallen, Raul Moncayo, and, and recently Donald Kalshed, uh, as well as many others. I've done my best to be an evangelist for the show, I've, and I've shared it a lot with my 
colleagues and friends, and I will continue to do so. Um, I'm also happy to say that I've finally gotten around to becoming a financial contributor and, and plan on continuing to do that um, because the podcast has really helped me both as a therapist and just as a person. Uh, I think the show is great, especially, um, you know, for us unions. But even before I was into the world of Jung, I enjoyed the, the show. I thought about writing you an email, but realized that you might enjoy it more hearing somebody's voice. And I think my reason for writing the email was just so that I could get something back. But then I thought, you know, I've I've gotten plenty from you and, and hope you just enjoy hearing another human's voice who really appreciates the podcast and want to encourage you to keep up the good work. Thanks a lot, Dr. Dave. Take care. Well, Carl, thanks so much for your evangelism for Shrink Wrap Radio. You're right. It is good to hear another human voice affirming the value of this work. Special thanks also to Beatrice and Albert Sheldon for their super colossal donations. They were my guests on episode number 787, in which they discussed their groundbreaking book, Complex Integration of Multiple Brain Systems in Therapy. And of course, thank you to all you other monthly supporters. Your regular donations mean so much to me. As a matter of fact, I got a powerful reminder today that it does cost me money to put this podcast out. I noticed my shrink wrap email wasn't working and discovered the problem was my web hosting had expired. It cost me $681 to get it all working again but I'm happy to report it is working again. So with that, time to shrink wrap it up. Thanks to today's guest, clinical psychologist and musician, Dr. Michael Alsay, for our delightful discussion about his book, Therapeutic Improvisation, How to Stop Winging It and Own It as a Therapist. Next week, my guest will be Varun Gandhi, Ph.D., discussing the challenges of Americans of South Asian heritage. I promise you, he's a very charismatic and fascinating guy. So until then, this is Dr. Dave reminding you to be kind to yourselves and others. You've been shrink-wrapped by Dr. Dave. All the psychology you need to know, and just enough to make you dangerous.